And turn now back to the passage that we read together in Luke chapter 23. And our text this evening will be taken from verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And we'll look in this passage after at the the conversation that takes place between the criminals and Jesus. But we'll give our minds focus to that words, one on his right and one on his left. Now, in, in business, the man in the middle is often seen as the person who passes on information or items between two parties in order to make himself a little bit of money. And often he is seen by many as someone who gets in the way. You'll hear that phrase, the middle man. He's someone that gets in the way. And the business that ruthlessly tries to increase profits will often try to eradicate this middle man And they often try to miss out the middleman. He gets in the way of making my business more successful. He gets in the way of me making more money. And if he was not there, I could do things the way that I wanted to do it. The middleman causes a problem for the man who selfishly runs his business. And in part, this is kind of what's going on here in this passage. Jesus has been eradicated. Jesus has been missed out and been pushed out because he's getting in the way. He is not what the majority of people want. When the matter of fact is that this middle man is the man between themselves and God. And without this middle man, there can be no business with God. There can be no communication with God. This man is the most important middle man ever to walk this world. He's one who stands between ourselves and God. But he is also a middle man that stands between men. You see, Jesus Christ is the man that causes the greatest union with ourselves and God, but he is also the greatest middle man that causes great division between men, between ourselves. One man is glad to eradicate and have no dealings with this middleman. And but the other side will say that the middleman is essential. And I require this man in my life. This is the divide we have in our text today between the man on the left and the man on the right. Jesus Christ is in the center, in the middle. All three condemned to be crucified. And between them, we have this recorded dialogue in the middle of the passage that we read. 
And it is kind of a poignant moment that these three men, certainly two men, who were about to die on their last words to this middle man. Now, this account is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But what you'll notice when you go to the other Gospels is that they will picture this scene exactly the same way. All four of them say that Jesus was in the middle and there was a man crucified on his left and a man on his right and they were both criminals. And these criminals are likely hard men, men that had committed serious, violent crimes. They were guilty of the death sentence. There was no mistake with these men. They were likely to be highway robbers. And if they were, they say that there's a good chance that they would have been accomplices to each other, helping and aiding each other, and that they were crucified together for their joint crimes. The world would maybe have called these two criminals worthless. Maybe they would have even used the term to say that they were scum. They were deserving to die for all the pain that they had brought to people and their selfish greed and their selfish way of life. And they wanted rid of these criminals. But we have Jesus in the middle. Now, why do you think that was? What makes it so notable that all the Gospels mention this point? They didn't just say that three men were crucified. Specifically, that Jesus was in the middle. It doesn't seem to be a clear-cut answer to it. But theologians have said that it is possible that Jesus was put in the center to show that he was the worst of the three. His offense was worse than the two at his side. His crime was the greatest of them all. And if this is true, we can say that, well, Christ even had a place of magnitude in his crucifixion and in his death. Or was he in the middle because he didn't deserve to be crucified? Jesus was innocent and there was no charge to him that was worthy of death or crucifixion, as Pilate himself said. It was an unjustified crucifixion and the soldiers, the chief priests, the rulers, they all knew his crucifixion was unjustified. But still their hostility and hatred towards this man, towards this middle man, meant that they wanted him gone, no matter what. Even if it meant overruling justice to get rid of him. Now, if you wanted to hide something, what would you do with it? You'd place it in somewhere, place it somewhere maybe inconspicuous. If you had a, say, a, a, a ring that was worth a lot of money, you didn't want anyone to see it. You'd hide it in a drawer. You'd hide it in a towel. You'd hide it somewhere where no one would look for it. Now, you hide it amongst something, don't you? Now, we do this physically with an item. We can hide it. Or we can do it with something 
maybe that we've done ourselves. We can do it in our own minds or with our own words with one another. Maybe we've done something wrong that we don't want people to find out about. Maybe we've, we've committed this sinful act that we don't want anyone to know about. And we've, what we do is we divert them around this thing that we've done. We don't want them to find out. We'll, we'll throw them on another route. So what we've done becomes unnoticed. What we've done becomes unknown to them. The truth of the situation is not told. And so what's happened is when we point people round and away from the crime or whatever it is that we've committed, that we divert them from the truth of the situation in order to protect ourselves. Is this what's going on when they crucified Christ? That they put a violent, two violent criminals either side of him, and they put Jesus in the middle, and by doing that they're saying they're diverting people's mind from him being a king to being an unjustified crucifixion, to saying, this man is the worst of all three. He's worse than the two evil criminals on either side. Is it a diversion tactic by those in charge, those rulers, those chief priests to protect themselves? And it reads that the passerby would blaspheme Christ as they walked by. They would approach the first criminal and they would see Jesus in the middle. He would be the worst offender and they would blaspheme him because the truth of the situation was not made clear to them. It was misunderstood if they didn't know Christ and who he was and what he had done. They would perceive that he was the worst of them. There's something that's prominent about Christ's crucifixion. But they railed at him specifically. In Jude, it says that people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And isn't that true in this passage here? They could blaspheme Christ on the cross as they walked past. Because really what's happening is they didn't understand who Christ was. And their misunderstanding of the Son of God meant they treated him essentially like scum. They treated him as worthless, a worthless man. And it's a staggering thought when you think about it. As the Son of God let men do this to him. I always kind of get caught up when it says that they spat upon him. How on earth could the Son of God allow any man to spit upon him? How could he be treated like this? Now, if you go to Matthew and Mark, it will say that the two criminals that were on either side of him joined in with those who reviled him joined in with the passerby who blasphemed him. But it says that they specifically heaped insults upon what the passerby said. 
It's almost as if these two criminals were saying, well, the passers-by's blasphemy is not enough for this man. We will heap our own insults upon him. And there seems to be at this time an overwhelming power of evil poured out at this moment. But we'll see that the surpassing power of God is still at work. And the middle man here, Jesus Christ, makes a divide between these criminals, these companions in their last moments. But is it not true that, well, the middle man divides all men, and it is true for us today that he divides the men of this world? And the question you must ask yourselves is what side are we on? Are you someone that wants to eradicate Jesus Christ out of your life? Are you someone that does not want to deal with this middle man? Or do you realize that you cannot do anything else without him? There was a change in one of them criminals, wasn't there? A surprising change. A surprise even for himself. He didn't expect Jesus to have such an impact on his life. And maybe some here can relate to that. That when they came beside Jesus, or when the word of God came beside them, they didn't realize how much of an impact it would have on their lives. It caught them off guard. It was a surprise. Let us look at the effect that we see in this middle man. The effect that he had on the man that had great change. And we'll do that with four brief R's. And our first R will be recognition. Something happens to this man as he is crucified beside Jesus, the man that had the great change. He recognizes something in Jesus as others blaspheme him, and it is unclear as to what he recognizes or what he picks up on this middle man doesn't tell us anything specific in scripture. When you look at it, maybe you can only pick out that it was just the nature of Christ himself and his reactions. The reactions to himself blaspheming the man. These, men, these two hardened criminals would never, ever have seen someone react so graciously to someone reviling him. And they're Certainly one of them is watching Jesus and saying, he, this middle man, has not shown one bit of hostility towards those who revile him. He's not shown any anger. He's not reviled back nor blasphemed them. And he did not spit upon anyone. And he's been mostly silent the time of this crucifixion. But when he has spoken, his words have been kind and loving. Forgive them, for they do not what they do. Do not know what they do. See, the more 
they watch this man, or certainly one of them is watching this man. The more time he spends beside Jesus, you see he's getting a clearer understanding and recognizing something about this man that is different to anyone else. But as he looks at Jesus, he recognizes that his own blasphemy upon Jesus was completely untoward. Maybe it was because death was staring him in the face. He was unable to run away from it. He was literally pinned to the cross, forced to consider this middle man beside him. In these moments when death comes to us, or the possibility of death, we're forced to consider the importance of Jesus Christ. And in these last few moments of his life, the man on the cross, he recognizes God in him. And he recognizes his own position before God. Maybe he didn't know who Jesus was exactly, but he must have known he was a man from God. Maybe that's what it takes that we, re, that we are set with death before us before we actually consider who Christ is. Before we actually look to him. Before we actually turn to him and see the importance of this middle man. Maybe we have to be forced into a position to do this. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to revile him? Or are you going to look at him and say that you need him? What will we do? His first R was recognition. Recognize something about this man. Maybe not sure who he was or what he meant to him, but he recognized something. Second R is rebuke. What are the first recorded words we have from this man who was converted in the last minute? Look there at verse 40. It says the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The first thing he says is, do you not fear God? This comment must have been completely out of the blue for those who were there that day. The man who was joined in reviling Jesus Christ now seems to be standing up for him. And this gives us good reason to think that he didn't know anything about Jesus before. Certainly whatever he had heard people say was not true. Maybe he had been put down this diversion tactic of making Jesus look bad himself so that he would revile him. But actually, when he was set before the truth of the man, he saw that there was certainly a difference. But it was certainly true that he did not understand everything about Jesus. That's why he could blaspheme him so easily when he came to the cross. 
But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10. This man had a fear of God instilled in his heart and asked his companion who was reviling him, do you not fear God? And his rebuke to his friend is as valid today as it was then. And what he says was more weighty, I think, than he ever realized. He says to his friend, do you not fear God? And that's what we say to those who are here tonight. Ask yourself, do you not fear God? Maybe you've been someone who has turned your back against this middle man. You wanted this middle man out of your life. Maybe you've taken his name in vain many a times. How can you? Do you not fear God? Because we are all under the same condemnation. Everyone here will face death physically. But in the sight of God, we are full of sin. And before God, we are worthy of death. We are all under the same condemnation in God's eyes. Criminal or not, these men were no worse off than us or ourselves in our natural state. We may think they are, but really in God's eyes, we are all the same without the middle man, without Jesus Christ. But the condemnation of God is spiritual death and eternal death. Does that not cause, give you reason to fear God? His rebuke is built upon his recognition. And he realizes that his punishment is just. His own punishment is completely just and he deserves to be on that cross. And he can definitely say without any maybes or doubts or mights about himself that he deserves to be there. But it's so equally confident as this hardened criminal and he looks at this middle man, he says, there is nothing in this man that deserves crucifixion. This man has done nothing wrong, is what he said. He could identify evil. He knew what a criminal was. And he's watching this man and he's saying, he's done nothing wrong. What is he doing here? And, you know, we look at this passage and we think, well, this is just for the unconverted. A call to the unconverted to come to Christ before it is too late. But it's more than that. There's a lesson for us all in this. There's a lesson to the Christian. What are our attitudes and reactions when people challenge us? When people revile us? When people ridicule us? How do we react? How do we speak? And you know, when we see this passage here, there's no recorded words between Jesus and the man beforehand. It is all 
by what he sees in Christ. And how important is our witness as Christians to the world who watches us? We may not speak a word to them, but even the most unsuspecting people may be watching us. People may be guilty of saying that they are worthless in our own hearts, if we're honest. Although we should never have that thought of anyone. Because we are all equal in God's eyes. We all face, we're all under the same sentence of condemnation without the middleman, without Christ. But you know what each of us gains when we come beside this middleman? Is that we gain a greater understanding of who he is and what he means to us and how much we must and how much we need him. And yet there are many who blaspheme his name and we hear them blaspheme his name. It's because they don't understand. That's why they can so easily do it. They don't fear God. What can we do as Christians to help them to understand? Maybe it's not what we say. Maybe it's the way we react. Maybe it's what we do as they watch us, maybe unknowingly. We are ambassadors for Christ. Let us be faithful ambassadors in all that we say and in all that we do. So we have the recognition. He recognized something. We have this rebuke to his friend, and then we see that there is a request that he makes to Jesus. And we'll see that in verse Mark 42. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come in to his when you come in to your kingdom. And this is first time that he has spoken not politely, but certainly in a way that is not derogatory towards Jesus. Whatever understanding he had gained in this short few moments by watching this man, he's grasped that Jesus has a kingdom. And it's a possibility that what is written above his head, that this man is actually a king. He is the king of the Jews. I don't think he grasped everything that was going on. I don't think he knew for certain who this man was. But he saw that he was a man of God. And he made a request to him, calling him by name, a personal element to that that he found some knowledge of him that he knew him in some way to say Jesus remember me he speaks to Jesus and this is his prayer remember me and you might ask yourself well, why does he not ask Jesus to save me like his companion. Well, I think it's because he realized in himself that he didn't deserve to be saved. He's only a few hours from dying. And he realizes, as he looks back over his entire life, 
Het is een life lived full of selfish greed and his own desires, with no concern for anyone else. Maybe he even had anger towards God. Whatever he is, or whatever he thinks of himself, he sees that there is no reason for him to be saved from this cross and from death. And that he would be remembered in some fashion would maybe just be enough for him. And I don't know your life, but maybe you're sitting here or you're listening to this and you're thinking, my life has been lived against God. I've spent my life reviling him, rejecting him, being selfish. Whatever it is, you may not be a criminal, but you may have rejected this middle man, not to have any dealings with him. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I am not worthy to be saved. Why on earth would God save someone like me? I believe this is what the thief was saying to himself as he hung there beside Jesus. But the unbelievable thing is that he does. And the unbelievable thing is that we don't do anything to deserve it. Maybe we think we're better than others, but we are under the same condemnation in the eyes of God. We have done nothing to deserve his grace and salvation, his saving grace that's given to us. Regardless of what we have been, even this man who reviled him and blasphemed him a couple of minutes ago, How much do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus can forget all that? But he does, and he will, for the one that approaches him and sincerely acknowledges who Christ is as a king, sincerely acknowledges who he is in his own person, that he is not worthy to be saved. He will. And he received a great reward. We had recognition. We have his request. We had his rebuke. And now we have his reward. And that is given from Jesus' own words in verse 43. Truly I say to you, Today he will be with me in paradise. This truly is an assured guarantee for the man that it will be certain this will happen. Christ will not just remember him, but welcome him. You will go into my kingdom with me, and my kingdom is a paradise. Paradise, the word here, speaks of a garden of pleasure and immediately turns our minds back to the garden of Eden being restored. Now, Jesus did far more than remember him. The first thing he did, I think, was to forget who he had been. There's no mention here of who he was or what he should do to prepare himself. 
all these sins and all these recent blasphemies against God, as he became, as he came to understand who Jesus was and saw who he was in the light and the presence of God, asked him to remember him. And, and Christ forgot all these sins. Just as if they never happened. What a contrast for the man that day. What had he expected that day as he went to that cross? He would have been crucified and tossed into the burning rubbish tip. That's what they did with the bodies. But now he had an assured word to be in paradise. The man in the middle changed his future and turned his world upside down. And he gave a dying man eternal hope. When he went to that cross in his head, he was thinking of hell. But after speaking to Christ in his head, he could only think of paradise. It was heaven for this man, and it was an assured word from Christ. And you know, he would have been full of questions. How is this possible? Why has he shown this love towards me and doing this for me? The darkness engulfed the land and the ground shook. And everyone who stood there realized when he died that this man was the son of God. And then there was no time for any conversation when Jesus took his last breath and died. Can you imagine these two criminals and the both having the response that they had seeing this middle man lifeless and looking at each other? They didn't have the energy to speak with each other. The words that we have recorded are short and brief because it would have taken all their energy to talk. I cannot imagine the look they had between each other. The divide. But Jesus, the man in the middle, made between them. Time was short. Opportunity had passed for one. Do you not fear God? But notice what happened also after Jesus died. In verse 48, it says that the crowds that were there departed. Nobody was there to see these two men. Nobody was there to remember them. They were all forgotten. Them two were forgotten. They were worthless to everyone else. They were not worth thinking about. But there was one there that knew that he was remembered. And remembered by the most important person that could ever remember him. The middle man remembered him. He depended on the middle man. And he knew he needed that middle man in his life. Now we said at the beginning 
that one would seek to eradicate the middleman, and one would saw, would see and know that he required him. But you know what's true of them both? I don't think they realized just how much they needed the middleman. How essential this man was to the, to the man who received him and to the man who rejected him. And I don't think they would ever realize it until they went into eternity, the importance of the middleman. But by then it was too late. And the middleman comes to us through his word and promises to be with us and to intercede for us before God. He takes our petitions before him. He is our great middle man. Do you recognize him? This man recognized him. This man had a loving rebuke to his friend. He had a request before Jesus. And he gained a great reward for trusting in him. He expected to die, but he ended up living. He is a middleman between men that causes a great divide. He is a middleman between ourselves and God for the one who trusts in him. Do not pass by the middleman. Do not disregard this middleman. He is the most important middleman in this world. All I can say is that you need him. We all need this middleman. Next week, God willing, you will stop and remember what this middleman has done for you. And you'll remember this scene where he died on the cross. You remember his body and you remember his blood that was poured out for you, who did not deserve his love. But as we do this and we come into his presence and commune beside him, we would have a greater understanding of who he is. Just like this man did. When he was beside Christ, he understood who he was. We remember him. But he remembers us. And even in that moment, when we remember him and do what he told us to do, there's still a divide, isn't there? What side are we on, we must ask ourselves. Where is our hope beyond death? Do we have the hope of the man who put his trust in Christ? Time is short. Opportunity is short. We don't know if we will be here next week. What side are we on? What side are we on? Do you not fear God? Let us pray.
Dear Father in heaven, open our eyes to understand who you are. Open our eyes to understand ourselves and who we are before you in your presence. You are the everlasting God. And you are the one who ordains all things. You are the one who gives us every breath and numbers our days. Help us to number our days that we may gain wisdom, Lord, we pray. Pray that you'd be with this congregation in the days ahead and the weeks ahead. Bless your word preached to them, we pray. And as they sit and commune with you, bless them with your presence. Amen. We'll conclude by singing to God's praise in Psalm 91 of the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 91, Scottish Psalter. You'll find that on page 352 of the Blue Book. I'm singing from verse 13 down to verse mark 16. Psalm 91. From verse 13 down to verse mark 16. Upon the adder thou shalt tread, and on the lion strong. Thy feet on dragons trample shall, and on the lions young. Because on me he set his love, I'll save and set him free. Because my great name he has known, I will him set on high. He'll call on me, I'll answer him. I will be with him still, in trouble to deliver him, and honour him I will. With length of days unto his mind, I will him satisfy, I also my salvation will cause his eyes to see. A a psalm of divine protection to the one who trusts in God. We'll stand and we'll sing these verses. Upon the adder thou shalt tread.
conclude with a short word of prayer. O Lord, as we part, we pray that your Spirit would be over us, guiding us and protecting us. Go before us, we ask in all things, preparing us our way, that we would be people trusting in you and set with strength, prepared for what lies ahead of us. Help us to be as little children, with arms outreached to our Heavenly Father for guidance, comfort and security. Be with us, we pray, and part us with your blessing and safety. Amen.